This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Let's face it. People have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Bed, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements, so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com at amica insurance we know it's more than just a car or a house it's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home when you combine auto and home insurance with amica we'll help protect it all and the more you cover the more you can save amica empathy is our best policy. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. Slowly but surely, the world is opening up to travel or at least relaxing some of the protocols and requirements. So I'm checking in with our correspondents and experts around the globe, not just for updates, but predictions. I'll chat first with Simon Calder, the senior travel editor for The Independent in London, for a European report. Then, what are Americans really thinking about travel? Amir Elan, the president of Longworth's International, has taken the pulse. Then, Don Gilbertson, senior reporter for USA Today, on the brave new low-fare airlines now flying and what this means for your travel choices, not to mention your wallets, and some important cautions. And finally, Scott Myrowitz, the executive editor at The Points Guy, on his travel crystal ball. What to expect in the world of travel for 2022. First up, from the independent in London, Simon Calder. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. My next guest, a regular on our show, we always like to hop the pond and find out what's going on in Europe, and there is so much going on in Europe, it's hard to keep track, but the man who does all that is the senior travel editor for The Independent, our good pal, Simon Calder. Hey, Simon. Oh, Peter, you're absolutely right. There is just a huge amount changing. Um, It's really difficult just in this small continent of Europe, um, which of course has dozens of countries, uh, rules are just changing all the time. But the big news is for, for anybody who's perhaps tempted to uh, uh, finally visit um, the the, uh, United Kingdom. Well, as from uh, the 11th of February, things have become much easier in terms of what you need. 
Previously, we demanded that you, Peter, when you came to the UK, you booked a COVID test for either the day you arrived or one of the two following days. And then you filled out this very complicated passenger locator form that I suspect was uh, devised by um, the the, uh, the writer Franz Kafka on a bad day. <laughs> it's a terrible thing. Unfortunately, the form is still with us, but the test is no longer required. And in what's proved really quite a controversial move here in the UK, um, there is now no quarantine required for unvaccinated travellers. So anybody from the US who hasn't been fully vaccinated can just take a test before they board a plane to the UK, take another test after you get here, but no self-isolation, um, which uh, the government here says is all to spur visits to get people travelling here because the um, inbound tourism industry has been pretty much decimated over the past couple of years. Well, let's talk about something else. Okay, I get the idea that you don't have to necessarily be quarantined and you don't necessarily have to be vaccinated. However, like in the United States, are you in a situation where I cannot go to a restaurant without showing proof of vaccination? No, and that's the very, very big difference between the UK and, and many, many other places. I mean, I've been doing the same as you. Um, I was in uh, the Netherlands in in the uh, in the fall, and there I had to go and get because my um, British jabs were not recognised. I had to go and get tested every morning at a, a government testing centre before I could even go and get a cup of coffee. It was uh, uh, really quite tricky. Um, but the UK has never had that rule. Um, certainly you go into a restaurant in Paris or a hotel in Germany, the first thing they want to know is where's, where's your proof of, um, of, of vaccination or sometimes of, of uh, a very recent test. But in the UK, no, um, the, the uh, 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 so much um, uh, the desire to get people um, here and spending money and hopefully enjoying themselves that um, it's very, very light touch. Um, I was over in uh, in Florida in December and you know, I, I felt that that was um, a very similar approach. Okay, now let's talk about your next door neighbor, of course, Ireland. Their doors are now wide open um, and anybody can come, which is great. Um, and we've seen what Norway just did. Norway saying, okay, we're open. You just got to get one test when you get here, which is a far cry from what it used to be. So slowly but surely, things are starting to open up. Such an interesting point, uh, Peter. Yes, we are now, I think, on the verge of getting what I would call competitive reopening, um, where we are going to go from what's been a pretty dismal winter. We had, for example, um, all the way through uh, Christmas and New Year, France said no, no, nobody from Britain can come in. Um, we we don't like the Omicron variant, and you've got too much of it there. Um, and they kept that in place for almost four weeks. Um, that's since been lifted, and I think as as the days lengthen, as the uh, weather warms, um, th there is going to be much more of a focus on. Crikey, we used to have a really big, important tourism industry, and this is you know, whether in France, in Italy, or indeed in the UK. Um, how are we going to get those people back? And you're going to do it by saying, Come over here, we'll make it easy for you to get in. Um, you won't need to self isolate when you get here, we'll guarantee you a great time. Um, and uh, that, that I think, is going to uh, almost have a domino effect right across Europe, and by uh, let's say May or June, I think uh, it will be not back to normal, but um, but we will have established a kind of new normal where there will be proof of vaccination. There will be perhaps some limited testing, but in general, um, you you will be able to travel to to and crucially around Europe without too much fuss. At the moment, I'm still cautioning against multi-nation trips because you know, if, if you were taking in maybe Italy, Switzerland and France, then you've got three sets of rules and uh, it gets very complex very quickly. You know, you talk about the competitive reopening. We've already seen so many examples where the needle moves dramatically. The minute a country says anybody can come in. I mean, people are just raging to go and they do. Uh, they, they they do, and um, uh, that the yeah the converse to that is that other places get left behind, and 
there there will be not just within Europe, but um, I think more widely. And I'm looking particularly here at Asia, where um, an awful lot of countries in East Asia particularly have been uh, keeping themselves pretty closed to tourists. Uh, I think they will start looking and, and thinking, you know, if, if we are too slow, then we will be in the position where people will have kind of forgotten why they used to travel to, for example, uh, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia and so on. So let's um, let, let's open up. Well, we've seen Thailand sort of like on a roller coaster. They are open one day and then close the next day and then open one week and close the next week. That doesn't instill a lot of confidence in travel when you think the rules can change by the hour. Uh, yeah, and and that that's been the problem actually for the UK all the way through. I mean, we we were in October. We were told, okay, everything is opening up. You know, we're reducing the the testing rules. We're making everything much easier. Um, and then suddenly Omicron came along, and no, everybody who comes into the UK has to uh, has to self isolate, and you're going to have to spend hundreds of dollars on on tests. So uh, we we hope that we're getting away from that, but um, frankly, it's difficult to uh, be certain about that because, of course, every government every minister is going to say, well, of course, we reserve the right if um, we don't like the look of a new variant of concern uh, to put the brakes on again and put the barriers up. But uh, uh, it's no way, as you have consistently reported for almost the last uh, two years, it's it's no way to run uh, a, an airline industry, a tourism industry. Um, people need certainty. And of course, how can there be certainty when there's no guarantee that another variant might not show up. The good news about the Omicron is this, as transmissible as it is, it's so much more manageable. It doesn't necessarily result in hospitalization or death. In fact, it may, you know, the, the vaccines have pre, you know, essentially taken hospitalization and death off the table. When we see the spike in cases in the Czech Republic, in the Netherlands, in Italy, in France, that's mostly, and Germany too, that's mostly unvaccinated people. Uh, sure. Yes, it's uh, uh, it, it is to use the um, slightly tired phrase. Um, it is a game changer. Omicron plus vaccination means that um, that that this is no longer the terrifying uh, uh, virus that um, has caused so much um, grief for the past two years. Um, I, I don't know about you, Peter, but I've always detected though that. Uh, countries, governments are very, very quick to lock down. They are much slower to open up. Um, and I'm looking forward to this competitive reopening because uh, I, I, I think only when you uh, get countries saying, hey, come over here. Well, Peter, you're welcome. Come here. We'll, <laughs> yeah, we, we want to see your certificate, but we will um, uh, we, we will guarantee you a great time. So it's a... Um, a, a uh, still remains a mess. Europe has gone some way. The European Union, which, of course, the UK is no longer part of, has some core principles which are beginning to um, uh, improve things. But we do need a, a worldwide system where uh, some combination of vaccines and testing uh, is going to secure a, a relatively easy passage around the world and then of course we deal we have to deal with well what happens with people who either can't or won't be vaccinated and um, how long are we going to have to wear these pesky masks for well there you've already answered the question because we're going to be wearing those masks until vaccination levels approach 90 percent that's number one number two uh, we're at the point now where many countries are now requiring proof not just of vaccines, but of booster shots because we're, we're, we're beyond the anniversary of the original vaccine being first available. So for every country that you're going to, you need to check not the website. Pick up a phone, call a travel agent, call somebody who specializes in that area because the rules are changing even more rapidly from the government's websites to, to keep up with it. I saw the story that ran, oh, it must have been a month and a half ago. We reported on it that, and this is just one example, that Lufthansa uh, was canceling 33,000 flights over the month and a half period because nobody was flying. But at the same time, and I get that, a lot of other airlines were paring down their schedules. But at the same time, Lufthansa and many other airlines were operating flights that were absolutely empty and always empty and still operating. Can you please explain? explain these ghost flights? 
Yes, and the numbers are scary. According to the uh, environmental campaigners at Greenpeace, they say 100,000 ghost flights could be flown across Europe this winter because of the rules on slots. Now, Europe is a very crowded continent, as you know. It also has very constrained airports, London Heathrow primarily, but also Paris, Charles de Gaulle, Amsterdam, Schiphol, Frankfurt, and so on. And uh, any airline that has slots at that airport, well, it's among their most valuable assets. That's their permission to land and take off that's given by governments in bilateral agreements. Uh, yes, if effectively. It just says um, that, that um, Air Greenberg can uh, land at London Heathrow at 7 a.m. and depart at uh, 10 a.m. To, to head back to New York or wherever. And these things have become more and more valuable as uh, aviation expanded. And they've always been governed by so-called use it or lose it rules. And that means typically you have to use that slot at least 80% of the time or you will lose it. The thing is, it doesn't say what you have to use it for. You don't necessarily have to be flying passengers around. And so, yes, Lufthansa Group, which includes Brussels Airlines, Austrian Airlines, Swiss, uh, and of course the German national airline itself, they have just been flying thousands of these operations because commercially it would be madness for them to lose these slots and operationally they know the demand isn't there so effectively you you don't bother with cabin crew you just send the pilots out from frankfurt to brussels or wherever um, they sit on the ground have a cup of coffee and they fly back incredibly wasteful incredibly expensive incredibly damaging to the environment and yet within the use them or lose them slot rules that's what um they have to do to um, to answer to their shareholders. Well, here's my question. I get that. We had the similar situation in the United States where the FAA was actually granting waivers to some airlines so that they wouldn't lose their slots if they didn't operate those flights. But the ones that are operating in Europe, is there any kind of requirement as to what kind of plane they have to operate? Uh, yeah, yes. So, so um, effectively, when the pandemic began, um, the reduction that the amount of flying you had to do fell immediately from 80 percent to just 25 percent. Um, so that was reasonable, I think, for most airlines to do. But then starting in December, uh, that increased to 50 percent. And that is rising again next month in March to 64%. Now, even though that's not even two thirds of the uh, previous flights, since we are looking right across Europe at a collapse of um, you know, typically 60% uh, uh, in the 2019 levels of flying, um, that is, uh, you're still going to have to do an awful lot of operations in order to keep those slots open. Um, Lufthansa, for instance, say that uh, uh, in the first three months of 2021, um, only 45% uh, of its uh, uh, its flights were were, were full, um, and they will quite. Uh, I was going to say happily, they're very unhappy about it for, on all levels, uh, but they will operate those flights. And that's repeated. And it has actually been like this for decades, particularly London Heathrow. The Australian airline Qantas used to keep a little chartered jet on the ground at Heathrow. It would fly every day from Heathrow to Manchester, a distance only 150 miles uh, it would sit there i think the pilots would go and have some lunch and they would come back and fly it back and it was perfectly worthwhile for um a Qantas, the australian airline um to spend many thousands of dollars a day on that because it kept this um uh, slot open that was worth um millions of dollars uh it's clearly it it, it um, completely conflicts with the wishes of aviation to um, uh, be more environmentally sensitive. And of course, um, politically, it's a, a disaster too, with so many people um, really concerned about climate change. Here's my question, Simon. Assuming I want to fly from London to Manchester, could I have taken that flight? Uh, there were some circumstances in which some transferring passengers 
would be allowed. So you came in from, say, Perth in Western Australia um, into Heathrow. Um, you may, if the timing was right, have been able to um, transfer to that um, flying under a, a Qantas flight number. But um, it, yeah, that wasn't the main purpose. There's plenty of there were plenty of other flights um, yeah, shuttling between London and Manchester. And uh, there was another example um, of an airline uh, that that would every day simply fly between London Heathrow and Cardiff Airport, which is maybe 140 miles away. <laughs> and that there was no pretense of carrying any press, passengers on there. It was an Airbus A320. So oh, wow. yeah, significant passenger flight. Um, and again, I'm just winning. just going there and back. I mentioned earlier in the program that, you know, in, in December, Lufthansa announced they were going to cancel 33,000 flights through just about next week. Uh, that's about 1,000 flights a day. Are those flights coming back? Uh, well, the, the, uh, the, the flights themselves, I mean, in terms of how aviation is looking in Europe this summer, it all depends who you talk to. Um, typically, airlines like Lufthansa, British Airways, Air France and its uh, partner KLM will be looking at maybe maybe 60 70 percent of uh, of 2019 levels whereas you have um ryanair absolutely dominant as the biggest low-cost airline uh saying that they are uh, hoping to expand beyond 2019 levels and their rival whiz air a hungarian carrier uh doing doing exactly the same and indeed um uh, close to where I'm speaking to you from Gatwick Airport in London, the second airport for London. Uh, they've managed to grab some slots there and they will be um, uh, competing direct with, um, well, mostly EasyJet, which is the second biggest um, Europe-wide low-cost airline, as well as British Airways. So, um, yeah, there, there will be some, some good deals around for passengers. But in general, um, wherever you're heading in the world, you can expect... Uh, less choice, um, narrower horizons, um, and probably, I'm certainly finding this, higher fares. There will be occasions, I mean, I'm, I'm still seeing some flights to and from um, uh, the UK particularly, which are you know, less than $20 for a a one or two hour flight. Um, but okay, let's, and let's, talk, and let's talk about that because the silver lining right now, at least for the foreseeable, let's say three or four months, is that there are great deals. Oh, oh, sure, yes, and and if you if you can kind of organise your trip around where the uh, deals are, then um, yeah, uh, absolutely fantastic prices. Um, I, for instance, I just flew from um, uh, Glasgow in in Scotland to Paris. Uh, that cost me what seventeen pounds, so maybe twenty five dollars. Uh, good quality flight on on EasyJet. And if if you are if you, know, if you were to come to the UK and base yourself there then uh, I, I'm just seeing um, absolutely ludicrous prices. Um, you know, any and, flight and, yeah, comparison yeah. website will show you. Um, here we are. Um, you can fly from uh, London Stansted to Amman in Jordan. Um, so that's a distance of maybe 2,000 miles. Um, and that's going to cost you... Uh, well, less than $50. You're going to have to change planes in Italy. But um, frankly, at that sort of price, who cares? Exactly. Well, you know, what I always recommend is that you're not necessarily going to see all these prices on U.S.-based websites. Uh, go to the Expedia website in the United Kingdom. Go to Travelocity website in the United Kingdom. Or go down to your local newsstand. This is old school, but it works. And get a copy of The Independent, The Sunday Telegraph, The Times, uh, either on Saturday or Sunday when they have their travel sections. Look at the ads there, which you will not see in the U.S. And as long as, as Simon says, as long as you can base yourself in London and use that as your hub, it's amazingly inexpensive deals you can get. Well, um, there, there are some um, some great deals out there. I use um, various fair comparison websites, um, but obviously um, book direct with the airline. Um, there's some some interesting uh, uh, online travel agents who will perhaps try to interpose themselves between you and the airline. Generally, uh, that way lies a certain amount of um, uh, misery. So, uh, yeah, but, but, yeah, I mean, uh, look, uh, there's a bit of this happening in the U.S. as well, I think. Oh, yes. 
dollars to fly from Buffalo down to Orlando. Uh, fantastic flight on Frontier. Um, but they're still <laughs> they're still emailing me twice a day with with offers. They think I live in Buffalo, and um, <laughs> but um, there we are. Uh, yeah, it, it, hey, welcome to, welcome to the world of uh, welcome to the world of big data. You're going to be getting offers from Buffalo now for the rest of your life. <laughs> you are. Yeah, I am. I, mean, I, am. I know. Listen, I tried. I tried to look. Look, I was researching a flight from New York to Des Moines, Iowa, just to look at a fare comparison. I had no intention of going. I'm still getting emails telling me about all the things I can do in Des Moines with great deals, but I'm still not going. My thanks to Simon. So what's the worst four-letter word in travel that starts with F? It's fear. So what are Americans scared about when it comes to travel this year? And more important, how are they trying to adjust? Amir Elan, who monitors all this for Longwoods International, weighs in. Let's go to the figures and the facts. And nobody better to give us the new trends about who's traveling, where they're traveling, or even if they're traveling, then the president of Longwords, Amir Elan. Amir, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Peter. Now, you guys study travel trends. You study travel philosophy, travel psychology, travel spend. I mean, you've been very, very busy because all the algorithms that could have been used to project demand and set pricing and figure out where people were going, you have to throw those out the window during the pandemic because you've never experienced anything like this. So all of the research that you're doing is really a brave new world, but it's all new information, isn't it? It is. Uh, you know, we never could have imagined that this would have been a disruption of such a magnitude. And so basically, right since the very first week of March 2020, we've been running something called the American Travel Center. Sentiment tracker, uh, where every two weeks we've been going into the field, talking to a thousand American travelers, asking them, you know, very simple questions about their thoughts on travel and, and what 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 they're doing or what they're about to engage in in light of this crazy pandemic. And and the thing that that struck me, and it wasn't surprising by the way, but one of your 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 other research organizations did a survey, and I love this answer, that they determined, and this is early on in the pandemic, within the first two months of when it really was really hitting hard that 38% of Americans would give up sex if they could travel again. <laughs> I saw something, that one, yeah. And something tells you that number probably has come down now as more people are traveling. But the question is, are more people traveling? And most importantly, Amir, why? Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. In terms of leisure travel, um, yes, more people are traveling now. Uh, the, le the leisure segment of travel industry is uh, here in, domestically in the U.S., um, is definitely uh, in full recovery mode. Uh, if you live anywhere in the Southeast US, uh, coastal destinations or any of the great outdoors destinations across this country, you definitely saw more people uh, this past year than you did uh, uh, even pre-pandemic in many cases uh, there. So that's happening. Folks are going to the great outdoors. They're seeking the beach experiences. They're seeking to get out and about, um, but they're also primarily traveling to go visit friends and relatives. Peter, we've had two years of giving up milestones, birthdays, celebrations, graduations, uh, getaways with friends and couples and families. And that's the first thing people are racing to do right now. You know, I noticed this anytime there's a crisis, uh, could be an economic crisis, could be a, a, a public health crisis. I go back to the, you know, the, the economic debacle in 2008, 2009. I walked into to a Hilton hotel in Paris and it was completely oversold by Americans. And I walked up to everybody in the lobby. I said, wait a minute. You know there's an economic crisis in America. Yes. But you came here. Oh, yeah. Why? And it was a very interesting. And by the way, their answers were all the same. And the answer was, we felt if we didn't come now, we'd never, ever go. It was sort of a last supper mentality of, of and by the way, they weren't going in a vacuum. They were bringing the entire family. It was sort of like one last hurrah, let's go. And you know, Peter, everything old is new again. That's exactly what we're seeing happening now. People are planning those bucket list trips right now because they're afraid of the next disruption. Uh, so we see that happening. We see a lot more spontaneity in travel. And yes, they are traveling in larger party sizes. So we are taking our extended families, uh, meeting up with friends at various destinations and so forth. Uh, and that's something for our industry to consider. How do you deal with these larger groups? Well, the way you do it, you see, you very, very smartly get the grandparents to pay for it. <laughs> Of course, why not? But also, there's the fear factor. And, you know, the subtext that I've been 
experiencing, not to mention hearing, because not everybody talks about it, is I so much want to go to point A, but I don't want to get there and get stuck and not be able to get home. So they don't go in the first place. So have you seen the travel industry try to pivot to address that concern? Well, we have. You know, uh, the number one thing that travelers, when we ask travelers about their hesitancy to travel right now, what's causing them to hesitate, hesitate uh, you know, beyond the obvious of, you know, perhaps catching COVID, the, the, the main thing is lack of clarity. Um, they want to know what the protocols are. It's interesting. The pent-up demand is at a really a pre-pandemic high. 91% of Americans, 9 out of 10 American travelers telling, telling us they have plans to go somewhere in the next six months. That's tremendous uh, there. And, and, and throughout the pandemic right now, only about 10% of travelers are currently canceling their trips outright. So that's really healthy. But at the same time, only 6 out of 10 travelers tell us that they feel safe traveling outside their community. So, so you see that that demand, they're, they're willing to take a little bit of risk, but they need to know what the protocols are, what are the expectations, what are the rules of engagement when they go to the intended destination. And some places are doing a great job of it, other places kind of sending mixed messages. So you're seeing almost a mileage limitation and a radius of where they want to go? Not really. Uh, they're taking short haul, long haul. I mean, obviously, during the height of the pandemic, uh, regional drive market was king. Um, we are seeing travelers, you know, about a third of American travelers right now are changing their plans uh, from uh, fr from flying de flying destinations to destinations they can drive to. So we have seen that. The re I mean, there was already a resurgence of the Great American Road Trip pre-pandemic. It's only growing exponentially right now. But as you and I both know, those airplanes are filling up again quite nicely. They are, although airfares are going up right now at the rate of 7% every three weeks, and that's going to be compounded. So the longer people wait to make those reservations for the summer, the more they're going to pay. And that's a great point. The one thing that we've seen is that well, one out of four American travelers are telling us right now that uh, their financial situation, concern for their own financial situation, um, will impact their decision to travel. And, you know, you've got the rising cost of transportation, as you said. You've got inflation at, uh, you know, decades uh, long high. And quite frankly, um, you know, they spent their stimulus checks. They spent all that money they, they saved by not taking vacations in 2020 uh, on, on what they paid for in, 2020, in 2021. I think you're going to see a very price-sensitive traveler uh, this summer in 2022. Yeah, that's a good point because we had a situation where there's a lot of money lying around in 2020 and 2021 that they spent, you know, and they spent on, and they probably spent on average, and you probably know this better than I do, they probably spent on average more than they normally would have spent because they figured why not? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it was not unreasonable to see folks spending three times as much as they would have typically budgeted for a family travel uh, pre-pandemic. I mean, I mean, Peter, we saw things like as we were monitoring the last summer's travel, we saw things like, you know, two to, two to three star limited service properties in, say, southeast Florida destinations that were three to four blocks from the beach getting an average daily rate of over $500. Think about, think about that. You wouldn't have paid near that pre-pandemic. And people gladly paid it because they just wanted to get away. They wanted to get out and they had the money in the bank. Well, like you said, they paid, they spent that money and inflation's hitting and they're not going to do that twice. So the summer of 2022 is going to be a very price sensitive summer. It's going to be a price sensitive summer. And then we also have the expectation out there for customer service. Uh, we, you know, the travel and tourism industry is suffering from a workforce issue like many other sectors of the economy uh, there. And, and this past year, people overlooked service a little bit because they were just thankful to be out and about. I think you're going to see that traveler expecting not just good value for what they're paying, but also expecting uh, a, a better level of service that they've been getting. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. My thanks to Amir. Okay, I've got some good news and some cautionary news. There are some bold new low-fare airlines out there. Will you fly them? Should you fly them? Don Gilbertson from USA Today with the report. 
Joining us now, happy to have her back on the show, the senior consumer travel reporter for USA Today, Dawn Gilbertson. Hey, Dawn. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me. You got it. You know, it, what we learned during the pandemic, among so many other things, of course, beware of the law of unintended consequences, is that if travel was coming back, it was being led not by business travel, but by leisure travel. And as sort of you know, counterintuitive as it might sound, in the middle of that pandemic, you had a lot of low fare carriers at least enter the market. You had Breeze run by David Nealman, of course, who started things like JetBlue and, and, and Azul down in Brazil. Uh, you had Avello started by a former United Airlines executive. And these were airlines that were picking routings that nobody else was doing, at least not on a nonstop basis, or regions of the country that they felt were being underserved. They were they were offering really great airfares, uh, in some cases as low as $19. And you checked them out. So what did you discover, Dawn, on those initial flights with Breeze? With Breeze? So I, I took both yeah. Last fall, Breeze, um, I did on uh, the East Coast. And Breeze, uh, when I was flying, uh, was using the Embraer, uh, you know, so no middle seats, uh, smaller planes. Um, but it was, you know, I mean, the fares were, were really cheap. The service was, uh, you know, top notch. The planes weren't very full for the most part, the ones that I was on. Uh, but, you know, I took four flights in, in two days. But, you know, if, the thing that people I found that people really like about it, you know, on the routes that they serve is that they don't usually have nonstop options or, or if they do have nonstop options, they're, they're expensive. And so people, you know, were really happy to be, not have to connect at a, at a major airline hub. You know, for instance, I flew from, uh, I flew from Tampa to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And, you know, I met I met some people on the flight that, you know, were just really happy to have it. I flew from Charleston to Providence, Rhode Island. I met a mom whose kids live in uh, Charleston or both in college and she goes to see them more frequently. So, you know, it's very early, but they are they are serving a need. And the idea of being able to go point to point without going through a hub saves you more than just time. And in this case, might even save you more than money, because anytime you add a connecting flight, to your itinerary, you're exponentially increasing your chances of a delay or a cancellation, especially in this environment. And yeah. uh, I love the idea that, you know, they're flying out of Islip and they're going down to Charleston. You, you know, you can't name another airline that's flying Tampa to Charleston nonstop. It doesn't exist. Right. And, and you know, I mean, there are some, I mean, there are some, I mean, some people view them as drawbacks. I mean, they, their service is not very frequent at all, at least yet. Do you know what I mean? So you, you just can't, you can't count on them like to go when you want to go, you know, as is the case with, you know, the Uniteds, the Deltas, the Southwests of the world, you know, the, on some sure. days, uh, in fact, someone jokingly in uh, a comment on one of my stories on Breeze jokingly, jokingly called them the Chick-fil-A of airlines, you know, just because they are, they are closed on certain days and just don't have flights. But um, right. I, I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any issues on my flights, but again, it was a small sample size. It was four flights. Um, I did mention in my story that, you know, some people, uh, one interesting thing about Breeze is that you cannot call Breeze. There's no customer service number. So if you get <laughs> from Hey, but wait a second, Don. But Don, there are major yeah. airlines right now that have a customer service uh, number, yeah. but you can't get them on the phone. So what's the difference? <laughs> that's that's what Breeze would argue. Uh, but that, I'm just saying it was a, it was a complaint out there. But yes, I mean, last week I was quoted four hours on American. Well, you beat me. I went three hours and forty nine minutes. Um, and the thing <laughs> and the thing that I drove me nuts. No, but here's what drove me nuts. And let's see if the same thing happened to you. You call the number. They basically put you on hold. But before they put you on hold, they'll actually say this to you in a recorded statement. At the conclusion of this call, please stay on the line for an additional two minutes to do a survey on our service. Are you <laughs> kidding me? I mean, <laughs> not happening. I already gave you my my service survey. Uh, you suck. <laughs> on, on, uh, I mean, that's that's a little silly. But but you know, but here's the thing: the market that Breeze is going for, and the market that maybe Avello is going for, which may also be the market that Allegiant went for when they started is somebody who has great flexibility in their schedule. They're not necessarily business travelers. They can plan ahead, and they know the plane only operates on a Tuesday, and, and they plan that way. Exactly. I, you know, I mean, you mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the CEO of 
Avello came, you know, was CFO of United. But before that, as you know, he was president of Allegiant. So it's there are a lot of Allegiant similarities there, and 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 ditto with with Breeze. I mean, people who have flown Bree uh, have flown Allegiant uh, will feel very at home on both Avello and Breeze if they happen to be serving their area. Of course, though, let's be honest; it's all a la carte pricing. There's the fare that might be thirty nine dollars, but you're paying for bags, you're paying for everything else. Oh, for sure. Uh, yes, uh, you know, I didn't. I, I tend to not want to pay for seats, especially if it's a shorter flight. And and most of both of those airlines' flights right now are pretty short. But obviously, if you were traveling with someone else, I was traveling by myself. You would want to, you know, up uh, pay up for a seat. You'd want, you know, you'd have to pay for a bag. But but really, what airline now except Southwest do you not have to pay for a bag on, right? And by the way, we love Southwest because of that. I mean, that is it's probably their strongest marketing tool that they don't charge for check baggage, right? I mean, you'd name any passenger at Southwest Airlines. They're not talking about the rich Corinthian leather or the in-flight cuisine. They're talking about the fact they didn't have to check a bag and pay for it. I think we're at a point now, though, with Southwest where we're, we really are paying for those bags if you look at their fares. Oh, yeah. I was going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to get to that. If you do a fair comparison on major routes where Southwest competes with the other three legacy carriers, you're going to find that their airfares are at least similar, if not even a little more expensive. But the optics here are that you don't have to go to your wallet when you check in. And right. given how how many people get feel beaten up by that, there's a lot to say for that. Yeah, their their marketing has, has been brilliant on this topic for years and years and years. And so people don't, I mean, I think, you know, some people, as you know, you know, don't really don't even shop anybody else. You know, they're just conditioned, you know, especially people that only fly maybe once or twice a year. You know, they they're conditioned to fly Southwest. Like you said, that part about the wallet, you know, they just go to Southwest website, book it and, and move on. Well, I remember hearing Doug Parker, who's the CEO of American, with a very interesting statistic that I wasn't aware of. And maybe you didn't hear either, but he said it. He said 85 percent of our passengers only fly the airline once a year. Yeah, he said that. And so is Scott Kirby uh, at United yeah. when he was there. Yes, no, they, I've heard that from several of the top executives. It is it is amazing, you know, which is also why, you know, things like basic economy tickets and so forth are, are so popular, you know? I mean, it's really cool to have the sexy Polaris seats on United and, and, and fancy lounges, but, you know, the vast majority of travelers out there, leisure travelers, you know, basically fly in economy. Although I will say this, Don, before we go to a break, I believe that a basic economy ticket was designed for one of two types of people. Either you're in the witness protection program or you're a fugitive from justice because you're not going to have any bags and you're only traveling very light. <laughs> that's that's my thought. But hey, okay. far be it from me to know. Hey, we're talking to Don Gilbertson from USA Today. Uh, Don, you know, one of the things that I, I tell everybody if you're going to fly one of these airlines, and by the way, I've enjoyed flying these airlines and, and uh, I don't have an issue with it except for one thing. You know, if you're flying United Airlines and your flight to Chicago gets delayed or canceled, there at least is the hope that you're still going to get to Chicago that day on United Airlines simply because you're flying back to their hub. They have an extra flight or they'll get you to another to another city that connects. Somehow you're going to get there. Uh, if you're flying an airline that only operates on Mondays and Thursdays from one particular city to go to another and there's a flight cancellation or delay, you don't get there for the next three days. Yeah, it's it's a big risk. It's a big risk with Avello and Breeze. It's a big risk with Allegiant, you know, given their very similar schedule, you know, based on the days they see demand. So, you know, yes, travelers for sure need need to know that. Uh, I mean, Avello, I talked to Avello's CEO about that, you know, and he was saying they, you know, they are careful to schedule the airline loosely enough where they have they have some uh, some cushion there should problems arise because the way Avello's uh, model is right now, they fly up and back the same day on their route. Right, and, then, and most of their routes, at least unless they've changed it, are on the West Coast and right. going north-south. I mean, they're going up to, uh, you know, small cities in Oregon and California uh, and Utah, correct? Well, yes, but then they just expanded. Uh, in fact, I got to go there for the, uh, I didn't fly them out of there, but um, I'm from Connecticut, so I... Uh, got to go to the opening, you know, they just opened a base at Tweed uh, New Haven airport in Connecticut and they're flying. And I actually think that that's, that it might even have more potential for them. You know, the flights from Connecticut to Florida, 
Yeah. You know, there's, right. there, there are so many underused airports in this country. Uh, that's one of them. The other one, of course, is not far from there, which is Stewart Airport in New York. And and one of my favorite airports, which a lot of low fare carriers fly from, and they're still underutilized, is MacArthur out at Islip, New York. I mean, right. so many. Uh, that is my favorite little airport, I'm telling you. It's uh, it's something that people don't understand. You know, Southwest flies there. Frontier flies there. Even American has one or two flights going out of there. There was a time that Southwest Airlines actually had a nonstop from Islip to Las Vegas. That was there about, about as far as you could get on tr- on a Transcon on Southwest. And for whatever reason, they pulled the flight, which I don't understand because there are 8 million people who live on Long Island who would do anything not to fly from Kennedy or LaGuardia. Right. I just think, you know, like the demand wasn't there because they also used to have, I live in Phoenix now, and for years they had Phoenix, Providence, Phoenix, a Hartford nonstop, which was just an absolute gift, just like the route you mentioned. And now that those have been gone for years, you know, they just couldn't fill the entire plane at, at a price they liked, I guess. Ooh, I feel bad about that because the technology exists with the with the aircraft they have to fly them longer distances, which which makes them more efficient in many cases. And between two airports that are that are both underserved, which, by the way, is the business model of both Breeze and Avello, right? Right. Yes. So. I mean- now, there's one other issue here with, with both of these airlines. One that's already happened with the Velo, I haven't seen it happen yet with Breeze, is that they'll announce service to a city, and if it doesn't develop in, in like in a week, they pull out. They both do it. In fact, you know, one of the flights, the first flight I took on Breeze out of New Orleans to Oklahoma City and interviewed, uh, you know, this business traveler commuter, you know, who just loved it because he didn't have to go through a hub. It shaved hours off his day. Uh, they, by the time my story ran, they'd already discontinued that route because there there wasn't demand. Avello is, is shaking things up. But, you know, so does so does Allegiant. Uh, Spirit doesn't do it as much. Uh, Frontier definitely does it. You know, it seems like Frontier has a, you know, a new bunch of route announcements, you know, every month or so. And then, you know, one time I went back and checked, you know, some of these don't last very long. I mean, they're just quick to they're quick to exit if if it's not performing. And and that's that's what, you know, Avello CEO said. He said, you know, we don't we don't have the luxury of waiting it out at this stage of our business. Well, he's right about that. But here's the problem, especially if you're flying to the Caribbean like Frontier does. You announce a route to the Caribbean it could be Aruba, could be Jamaica, could be Belize. And, you know, you spend a lot of money developing that route, getting all the approvals between two separate com- governments. You got to staff it. You got to put ground handling in there. You have caterers. You have hotels to put your staff, blah, 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 blah. You only have one frequency a week. Yeah. And if you cancel that flight, how does anybody get home? And what confidence does that give the flying public that you're there to stay? And that's, that's, a, that's I think, the enduring problem here. Oh, 100%. Because, you know, if you get people excited, you know, like, that's why it'll be interesting to watch Avello in New Haven. You know, there's so much excitement in that community there, you know, for people that maybe don't have to go to Providence or don't have to go to, you know, one of the New York City airports. But if if people like say fly in one time this winter or last fall to Florida, and then all of a sudden they see that there's, you know, no more flights, you know, there goes any kind of loyalty they might have been building. So basically you're doing you're mounting a one woman campaign to keep that flight there. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I know you are. My thanks to Dawn. So what's in store for your travel plans for the rest of this year? In a world of disruption, do you even have plans? Scott Myrowitz, the executive editor at The Points Guy, might possibly point you in the right direction. The executive editor at The Points Guy, Scott Myrowitz. Hey, Scott, welcome. Great to be back there. How are things? They're okay. You know, we're hanging in. We're traveling a little bit more. We're weathering the storms, of which there are many. But we won't talk about the weather, but we will talk about the other weather word, which starts with W-H-E-T-H-E-R, whether we're going to travel this year and how we're going to travel and uh, get your get your viewpoint on it as well. <laughs> well, whether we will travel or not, I think we definitely will. How we travel, where we travel, and when we travel um, is all up in the air. Yeah, I think we've been talking a lot about flex ability over the past few years, the ability to cancel and change trips. And I think people are now at a point where we're all learning to live with this uh, virus, which is 
slowly shifting into the endemic, not pandemic world. And with that are going to come changes in travel. So we still need to figure out a lot around testing and rules and what digital passport you need before a trip or on a trip, uh, vaccine requirements for museums and restaurants and some big cities. But I think what you're going to get to hopefully by the summer is much more of a stable situation. People will be back to taking trips. However, there will be just more frequent cancellations. And the airlines and hotels have really, boy, I can't believe I'm giving them credit here, have done a good job on all the new bookings. I'm giving you a lot more flexibility. You know, those dreaded change fees are mostly gone, except for those basic economy fares. And you're able to, for a difference in fare, make changes. Uh, in this week alone, I will tell you that I've changed two airplane tickets and two Amtrak trains. Uh, train tickets, and all those I managed to avoid fees thanks to the new policies. Cool. All right, so we're talking about that, but we're also talking about the changes in in rules about vaccination proof and rules in terms of boosters and rules in terms of testing. Uh, the, the travel industry has basically launched a, a war, if you will, uh, uh, against the U.S. government saying, if you're already vaccinated, why do you have to test again? You know, why are you doing that? Um, and by the way, this is the United, this is even the World Health Organization coming on board. Yeah, you're starting to see it um, mostly in Europe right now. Portugal and the United Kingdom are both relaxing rules about, you know, testing to enter their country. And you have a big push, particularly from the airlines here in the United States, but also the rest of the travel industry saying, hey, you know, we've tried all these testing rules to stop variants from coming in. And None of them have worked. So let's get over this. You know, if you have COVID, do the responsible thing. But at the same point, we're putting in so many hurdles and steps that's really hindering travel. I will say personally, my family over Christmas break made the decision to go to Puerto Rico instead of a different island, specifically because we were just afraid of having to quarantine somewhere uh, if God forbid someone tested positive. Now, again, if someone tests positive and is symptomatic, yeah, you're going to have to quarantine anyway. But just that added threshold of asymptomatic testing has, as we saw, shown up and just stopped so many people from getting home. And I'm no health expert, but I know at least what that means for the travel industry and the fear that travelers have of making those bookings. Of course, the other the other story that we haven't really talked about, but it's there. It's 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 not the elephant in the room. It's the entire herd, is the the people who are not getting vaccinated and that impact on the people who want to travel. Yeah, and you know I don't want to dive into the long politics of it, except to say that my entire family is vaccinated, and those who have eligible for boosters have done so. I personally believe in those. And I think I'm doing it to do my part to stop variants from spreading from this, you know, virus mutating and to finally end this nightmare that we're out of. And you see a lot of places like a Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, who don't just say, hey, you need a vaccination proof to enter a restaurant, but also to get into a museum or to get into any large gathering, a Broadway show. And it's just going to become harder and harder for many people to travel and experience the, the things that we do if they're not vaccinated. So, uh, you know, I think there's going to be a stronger push on, you know, vaccine compliance instead of testing, particularly around travel. It's happening all over the place. Hotels giving out bonus points for writing great reviews. I mean, nobody's watching the store here. And and anytime I see reviews that with, with words that end in ST, best, greatest, most, finest, loveliest, I go, okay, red flag, who got bonus points for that one? I mean, where do we go from here? Do we really believe any of this stuff anymore? 
So this is where I'm going to make my big plug for the points guy and oh, our team I'm, oh, of God, travel no, no, no. experts. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to say. You know, sites like ours, we go out there anonymously review, and the people who are doing those reviews have stayed at 50 or 100 hotels in the past five years and really know what they're talking about. Compared to someone who just shows up late at night and is just met by a grumpy front desk clerk and is like, yeah, I'm sorry, the air conditioning was too cold in my room. I'm one of those people who believes that there are going to be problems at hotels or airlines, any travel provider. The real test for me is how they recover from that service failure. That for me is a sign that this isn't going to happen again to another guest, or this is a hotel that really cares about people. And there's just something about paying people, even if it's a token 500 bonus points for a review, that taints the pool in my mind. Well, you know what, Scott? It gets it gets even worse because in some of these hotels' cases, we've done some investigation, we do a little IP research. And the next thing you know, all these reviews are being sent in in the hotel's business center on the business center computer by hotel employees. There's no verification process out there. And I think that's a big, big problem. Now, look, I do use sites like TripAdvisor, but I do it with a grain of salt. I look really carefully at it. I try to, you know, spelling and grammar mean a lot to me in these cases, but I want to make sure that it feels authentic, not a little too over the top. I look for patterns. I read the bad ones, you know, I read the great ones, but let I me, think let you me need give to look my... at other other sites oh, sure. out there. And, and Peter, one other thing, like do some of your own research, I will tell you my personal tip is I go to Google Maps and then hop on Street View and take a look at a hotel, particularly a motel. I want to know if it's near an off-ramp and it's going to be really loud, or if there are trees between me and the highway, or if it's next to a nightclub or another adult establishment. Like That makes a big difference for me, better than any review. Well, I'll tell you my New Jersey story because I forgot to tell you what happened when I entered the room. I entered the room, the doorknob fell off. The drapes, the drapes were hanging from the ceiling off the rack. The windows were cracked. The mirror in the bathroom had three cracks. Uh, it, oh, oh, the best part, the chair in the room, not only was the upholstery ripped, it was bloodstained. And I kept on saying, this isn't a hotel. This is scene five in The Shining. And this guy wanted me to write a great review for a discount? Are you, this is like, it was... I could have had a better story set up in my life. It was almost like I created this problem, but I didn't. Did you write the review? That's the question. Oh, I did better than that. I did a television piece on it, holding up the card, and I did it from the roof of that hotel. So look, the bottom line is, if somebody's offering you a discount to write a great review, there's something wrong with that to begin with. It's either a good hotel or it's not. And as Scott says, the true definition of a, of a hotel that's great is not the delivery of the service. It's the recovery if something doesn't work well. Because if they quickly recover, sensitively recover, and intelligently recover, I want to go back there. Exactly. And that's why, you know, this is a really upsetting trend. And I hope people out there realize it. And, you know, I'm not just going to plug our site at the Points Guy, but tell you there are other sites out there and trusted travelers. And be aware of that and be aware who's taking a free trip versus who's paying on their own and who those reviewers are. And the bottom line, of course, is if you get to a hotel that's been recommended by Scott and you're under a freeway off ramp next to a strip club, it's probably not this Scott. <laughs> it's probably not this Scott Meyerowitz, the executive editor at The Points Guy. Hey, quickly, before we run out of time, uh, are the mileage programs getting any better? Because they're all going to dynamic pricing. I have no idea what I can use. I have no idea when I can use it. I'm, I'm sort of like rolling the dice and I'm blind. Really quickly. What is happening is your points and miles are becoming much more linked to the price of something, whether it's airfare or hotel room. So it's all fare-based. It's fare-based, yeah. It's fare-based. You're not going to get outsized value anymore. So you're not going to find that business class flight to Europe for 20,000 miles anymore or that Ritz-Carlton during Christmas week for just a few points. My thanks to Scott, to Amiri Long, to Don Gilbertson, and to Simon Calder. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel Podcast. 
more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, that's an easy one. Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.